This program is brought to you by Teachers College, Columbia University. Please visit us online at itunes.tc.columbia.edu. Okay, where to start? Cultural quarters. Basically, where I was heading yesterday was to suggest that cultural industries strategies at national level haven't so far had much interesting to show for themselves. Although there is a great deal of literature on the classification of um, uh, cultural industries. And I'm using cultural industries and creative industries interchangeably. Uh, and I think that the most spectacular sort of stalling of that area is really in the United Kingdom where the labor, incoming Labour government put a great deal of emphasis uh, on cultural industries, spent at least um, six or seven years mapping them with fastidious precision, but never really translated mapping into much by way of a policy. Um, uh, I think, however, I'm going to suggest that uh, as, you, as you move to smaller units and you move to cities and districts within cities, then um, cultural industry strategies become um, much more relevant, have much more purchase, and the interesting thing is, is how and why. So let's just start off with creative quarters. What are creative quarters or creative districts? Cultural, again, interchangeable, imprecise um, terminology. Cultural districts, uh, cultural <coughs> quarters, creative quarters, creative districts, all. I suspect that somewhere, someone has drawn some fine line differentiation between these. I've never found one. So if you find one, let me know. Um, okay, what are they? Right. And uh, then the other is. Uh, so you're making distinct. You're saying they're different sorts. I, I, There's a topology. I them as yeah, yeah, I agree. I, mean, I think I think there is a sort of topology, and I think you're you're on to it. In <coughs> other words, there are different sorts, so we should try and break break them down into different sorts because they've got different features. Yeah. Okay. So tell me what the first sort is. Okay, so this is basically about consumption, yeah? Entertainment. Consumption, Experience. they're entertainment districts, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. A lot about nighttime economy, yeah? Give me some examples. Broadway, okay. All right, I don't want another American example. I want a non-American example. Soho? Soho, London? Yeah. Is it culture? It's mostly sex, I think. But. <laughs> Covent Garden, yeah. Well, these are just, right, but are they, is Covent, Covent Garden has the Royal Opera House in it. But what, does it have any other cultural? Okay, West End. Yeah. 
uh, museum district in Frankfurt. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Frankfurt, in an act of, I don't know really what overcame it, but Frankfurt decided its strategy was going to be to build museums. And Frankfurt built, in, in the 1980s, seven new museums. A museum of you know, contemporary art, a museum of architecture, a museum of textile design, a museum of, um, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember them all, um, uh, a historical museum, all beautiful contemporary buildings, each designed by another star architect, as you call them, you know, a famous, a famous architect. Um, and um, uh, basically it's a tourist district. Is there a similar one in Berlin, the Museum Island? Museum Island? Yeah. What's the Vienna one called? The it's called the, the, the Museum's Quarter. Yeah, the Museum's Quarter. Okay, Vienna. Not just Barcelona. <laughs> what? Yeah, whole city. Just Barcelona. Period, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Bilbao? Would you call, would you put Bilbao in there? Yeah? Yes, okay, all right, so next model. That was your first model, what's your second model? So my second model is the revitalization of uh, towns and cities uh, by incorporating artists. Right, so production and consumption, yeah? Yeah, so subsidizing their, uh, whether it's housing or galleries. Well, we'll come to how they do it in a second. Let's okay. just uh, get what they are. So production and consumption are combined together in some way. The thing about a lot of these is, uh, as it were, it's not necessarily where art is produced, but it's where art is consumed. Um, you know, Covent Garden, no, Covent Garden, but, but uh, you know, Frankfurt or, in Frankfurt certainly is the case that, you know, uh, these are basically tourist, uh, uh, they're basically aimed at a tourist industry, but it's not that there are artists producing in this environment. It's not a, it's not a production environment, it's a consumption environment. All right, so give me some examples of what, what you mean where, where they're intermeshed. Like Mass Adams, like Mass Mocha. Okay, Mass, yeah. Uh, Adams, and North Adams. Adams, is that what it's called? Yeah. North Adams. Uh, well, the idea of mass mocha, partially realized, not wholly realized, but partially realized, is that in this industrial mill town in, in southern Massachusetts, that um, uh, there's a re revitalization of the, uh, of the uh, economy by replacing the traditional mill industry with um, uh, creative industries uh, using those mill spaces, and that as the um, focal point of that was a very large-scale um, uh, contemporary gallery space, which is Mass Mocha, which is Museum of Contemporary Art, Massachusetts, or Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art. Williamsburg, cultural district. Where? Brooklyn. No. Yes? All right. What, are, what makes it a cultural district or a cultural quarter? All right. Is that the same place? No. Right. Right. So there's a high density of. Uh, all right. So. Um, it's more homegrown. 
Okay. All right. Up. So here's an important here's here's a really important point. Some of these places happened organically. Most cultural quarters happened organi organically, often over 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, right. That's the Avenue of the Arts I would put up here, wouldn't you? These are big, fancy uh, buildings. Uh, you know, um, there's not a lot of fine-grained consumption in there. But sorry, just to f uh, revert to the thought before you, before you said that, some of these... Some of these are organically, uh, have developed spontaneously as a result of certain factors. And we can say what those factors are. Clearly, cheap accommodation is an important one for some of them. Others of them are attempts to replicate those organically grown models through the use of policy. Agreed? In other words, in other words successful organic cultural quarters, people have looked at what their attributes are and then tried to devise policies to stimulate them, to replicate them. It's no longer, I feel that the younger generation of artists yeah. are from Brooklyn, let's just say Brooklyn, let's yeah. not say Greensburg, um, the energy isn't about, isn't, isn't going into uh, being exhibited in Chelsea anymore in a lot of the more kind of institutionalized Right, do you think that's of their volition? You know, you're, you're describing, you are describing what I thought you were doing. You're describing a dynamic process. Yeah. That an but area... Well. Right, but an area like Soho starts off as an area of cheap accommodation right. and large light spaces mm -hmm. that attracts artists. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Over time, property values increase as that area becomes fashionable and rehabilitated. Those artists then find that it is difficult, it becomes a less sympathetic space. They therefore look for alternative areas where they can afford A to live and B to work. And that area, as it were, is redeveloped. So you could say, if you look over two generations or three generations, that uh, artistic activity moved from Soho in New York to Chelsea, then got priced out of Chelsea and has now moved to Williamsburg, uh, Dumbo, etc. And Dumbo, which is down under um, Manhattan, Manhattan Bridge, uh, there is a developer, Valentis, mm -hmm. who has explicitly embraced and acknowledged that strategy as his development strategy. What he has said is, I will rent these spaces for a period of time very cheaply to artists for both production and consumption, um, uh, and as my area develops, I will move them out. You artists have to embrace that Faustian pact, that in order to be part of this, uh, in order to enjoy these cheap spaces, you will not be around forever. Is he the, is he the one who runs the St. Anne's? Yeah. But in fact, Minneapolis developed a policy for right. these workspaces, learning uh, from this experience of gentrification from Soho. Okay. I've got a question about yeah. They own the space, so artists own the you're, you're going too fast. <laughs> you're absolutely right. In other words, uh, in other words that, that cyclical process, some people have come in and said, well, hang on, there's a sort of injustice here. How can we, how can we as it were, guarantee longevity of this area as an, as an arts district, of a particular sort of arts district? The co-location of production and consumption which is critical to the success of this model 
and has a very different feel and purpose from this model, requires low cost for production. Well, clearly, you cannot afford you know, large-scale production facilities in lots of these areas. You can in these for a period of time. Go on. The, the Dumbo example, would that be a, a cultural policy undertaken by an individual or a private company? He and could only do that. Would we still call it cultural? We, we call that cultural policy. Yeah, because he, he could only do that with the explicit blessing, and I think intelligent blessing. There's no sort of there's nothing dubious about this. It seems to be a great strategy. Um, but he could only do that with considerable assistance strategically from both DCA and Brooklyn, Department of, uh, of um, Cultural Affairs in Brooklyn. In fact, we can ask Kate about that next week. Would Peak Skill be in that category? Peak I don't know. Tell me what's going on in Peak Skill. Right. To create tourism, bringing people to see the studios, enabling the artists to live and work in the same space and sell their. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at Peak Skill. That's actually, that's actually what I was thinking. I was thinking of Peak Skill originally. Okay. So if you think of Peak Skill, I mean, let's. Uh, yeah. If you look at Peak Skill. Uh, if you look at where Brent is moving to, which is Beacon. These are industrial, they're, they're like North Adams. They're basically like North Adams. They are cities that have looked at the hollowing out of their uh, industrial infrastructure, which was often based on light manufacturing of various sorts, or the presence of IBM for a lot of, uh, a lot, a lot of, company, a lot of uh, cities in the Hudson Valley. Some actual car industry as well, I think, in, in um, Tarrytown. Tarrytown, exactly. Um, and as that has gone away, they basically said, God, what are we going to do? Um, uh, how, do we, how do we, as it were, create a, 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 uh, recreate vitality? One of the ways in which we can uh, create some sort of vitality is some sort of diversification uh, into, uh, 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 into cultural industries of one sort or another. So how do we incentivize people? Uh, we incentivize them by... Um, uh, giving them development grants for real estate, basically, which is the principal means at their disposal, um, uh, and, uh, and then going out and, as it were, hustling on that city's behalf to encourage artists there. And usually trying to take one or two, as it were, um, landmark projects that have sufficient profile to act as magnets. I'm not sure what that is in Peekskill. Uh, is that the theater? I don't know. Probably not. But uh, certainly in Beacon, it's Dear Beacon. It was the, it, it was, um, uh, the um, uh, Dear Foundation's very uh, large-scale um, uh, gallery. But it's also um, uh, the, um, the foundry was there for a while. Um, God, I've forgotten the name of the foundry. The foundry that um, uh, Alexander Calder and others used. But basically, Dear Beacon was the... Uh, became the sort of you know the linchpin of that uh, 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 of that attempt, as it were, to very deliberately recreate a um, you know uh, a new economy Peak around the city. Didn't have that linchpin. I think it was more an aggressive attempt to lure artists from Soho. And has it been successful? No. Well, and isn't it Peekskill Beacon? All of those Hudson. Yeah. Now that's part of like this greater Hudson Valley sort of initiative going on where they're trying to bring cultural tourism, yeah. but also, and I'm, I'm not so sure which came first. Is it historic towns, right. not so 
Okay. Could you just clarify? My understanding is that somebody, if you can call something officially like a coastal district, there are some legal things that come with it, like in terms of living and work spaces. Yeah. You. What you do is you you use you use your zoning laws in order to define um, uh, what sort of industries you're seeking to attract, and your zoning laws are basically around you know incentivizing property taxes. That's basically what you've got at your disposal. I, um, cultural districts are much more difficult to make work than you would think. Or maybe put another way, they're predictably difficult, I don't know. But anyway, they are difficult to make work. Um, and quite a lot of thought has been given to what, you know, uh, what does now work and doesn't now work. People have been trying to, as it were, engineer as opposed to simply enjoy what they've uh, spontaneously uh, occurred engineer cultural districts for about 20 or 30 years. And there are some very successfully engineered cultural districts. And there are many cultural districts that have not lived up to their um, aspirations. Um, uh, I did a piece of work a few years ago in St. Louis uh, on the cultural district there because it had basically stalled. And it became a great opportunity for looking at other cultural districts and finding out you know, what had worked and what hadn't worked. And there is a, you know, there's a reasonably good literature uh, on it, uh, both on the tourist model, if you like, the sorry, the, the consumption model and the consumption and production model. Um, most of it's common sense, but let's just see. I mean, what do you think works and doesn't work? And then we'll come. Yeah. And for people to go to experience the yeah. correct? Yeah. They're trying to be everything to everyone. Well, uh, they're trying to... Um, and to be successful in doing all this. Yeah. Okay. I was trying to think of an example. I can't think of anything. Uh, well, um, what... Uh, Back home. I can't think of anything. In Australia? Yeah. I've got plenty of what about downtown? What about the harbour area? What? Well, you know, the um, <laughs> the theatre, the theatre. Um, but people live downtown in Sydney. Mm. It's very unusual in that respect. Mm. It has a it has a it has a work live downtown. Yeah, it does actually. It's not as if you know artists live near the opera house. You know, no, but there no. is a drive to try and make that that part of Sydney because all all the cultural institutions are up along there are creating part of Sydney. Yeah, I guess but your point is a very place. good one, is that actually nobody could afford to have a studio there. Right, and that's, that's one big dilemma. Yeah. The big dilemma, which is what uh, Minneapolis has, uh, tried to address, is the, the transient nature of successful cultural districts where production and consumption are co-located because their very success destroys them. In other words, the point at which people really want to go there is the point at which the artists get priced out of the market. Yeah. And, and I would say creative policy at that level is often not distinguishing between art forms. It's simply saying we want to encourage creative people there. And part of it is that sense of you know, the creative musician meeting the creative graphics design person produces the CD. Right. So, so when we're looking at critical success factors for cultural districts, um, 
uh, I think, uh, diversity is exactly right. In other words, um, uh, it's those areas where there is a combination of for-profit and not-for-profit. There's a combination of different scales from individual, unincorporated individuals to small private sector and public sector organizations right through to one or two usually anchor larger organizations. Anchors because they're significant, uh, robust employers or more significant, more robust employers. And also because they create a symbolic destination. In other words, the thing that gets you there. They might not be the thing that keeps you there, but they're the thing that gets you there. What else? Food. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, but what's related to food? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I guess what I was going to say is nighttime economy as well as daytime. Uh, extended, econo extended working hours. Transport? <coughs> yeah. Um, well, access in one form or another. It might not be transport, but access. Yeah, public, yeah, um, uh, public safety. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you will see that a lot of, a lot of cultural districts have separate uh, utility services. In other words, uh, although it may not be that obvious, um, they, have, uh, they often have separate policing, uh, and they often have separate you know, refuse and so forth collection. In other words, they are... Uh, uh, and they pay, uh, uh, they, they, in the U.S. are called BI, business uh, improvement districts. They pay a premium for services in return for those dedicated services in that area. There, there's a sort of separate tax base for that area. The garment district, for example. Requires a minimum level of buy-in. How do you mean? Uh, if it's one that's being created artificially, a belief of consumers and producers that Right, so there needs to be some sort of uh, uh, consensus uh, created. In other words, uh, to persuade you to move there, you've got to have some sort of degree of confidence that others are moving there. You know, um, when you, so part of a cultural district is creating the brand that gives the people the confidence or tricks them into, or whatever it is, going there on the assumption that other people will go there. And so timing is a real issue. I worked, uh, and here's, here's, here's one of the things that it, one of the devices that is used to get through that. One of the devices that's used to get through that uh, is to say to some not-for-profit organization, we will not only incentivize you, we will help, you know, we will help pay for your move or we will even help pay for your capital costs in order that you come here first. It is no coincidence that when you look at a lot of new building of cultural organizations, they are not in expensive pieces of real estate. They're in uh, adventurous regeneration schemes. Why are they in adventurous regeneration schemes? Not because they think, gosh, we're adventurous. We want to go as far away from our audience as we can get. <laughs> it's because there is, a there is a financial incentive to do it. And one of the challenges for them is that often they are the first there and development always takes longer than anybody wants to believe. The developer wants to say it's going to happen overnight. The, um, uh, you know, the, the, the organization that's trying to persuade its board to move there says it's going to happen overnight. 
and they will often then go there and sit there for two, three, four, five years whilst that ancillary development catches up with them. And that's often a time of deep financial trauma for those organizations. I um, worked 20 years ago now on setting up something called the Design Museum in London's Docklands, uh, a, um, a museum of textile design, uh, fashion design, industrial design, um, uh, for Terence Conran, who's a, a British entrepreneur. Um, uh, and uh, he set up a not-for-profit in order to create this. We got uh, incredible incentives uh, to move into London's Docklands. Uh, we opened on, I don't know why, it sounds very American, July the 4th, 1989. <laughs> um, uh, we, um, uh, uh, five years, uh, and we were in a building site. Um, uh, beautiful location, lots of, you know, gently declining industrial buildings, the Thames going past, all very gorgeous, southeast of Tower Bridge in London. Uh, three or four years later, we were still in exactly that same, uh, same um, uh, location where the museum was in exactly the same circumstances because the development around it had hit recession and gone much more slowly. I don't know if you remember the traumas of Canary Wharf, um, but there was a you know, big development in, in the Docklands that you know, started and failed. If you look historically at most large-scale ambitious developments, the first developer in usually goes bust. It's the second or third developer who manages to buy it out of bankruptcy that actually gets the thing going. Um, uh, but meanwhile, the arts organization is there sort of hanging on for dear life. It's now absolutely humming if you go there, and there are shops and restaurants and, and uh, art, arts, artists' workspaces and all the rest of it, but for the first few years. But that issue of timing, that issue that you, you, of, of how do you create a consensus, actually the first few movers often have to be really coaxed and highly incentivized into, the, into it to give it the identity around which other things happen. I guess there are two things that work. One, governments find it easier to give money to non-for-profits than for-profits, and I think that's significant. Um, uh, uh, they tend to incentivize for-profits through tax breaks rather than through direct funding. Um, uh, but two, you find it, I mean, I have to say, you find, that with, you find that with private sector too. You will find, you know, the turnover in restaurants is incredibly high. You know, how many, uh, who knows those terrifying, uh, Okay, so two-thirds are bankrupt within five years. So, so um, I think that they have learned probably that as a, as a, as a method, um, the direct incentivization of restaurants, if a restaurant's stuck there with no um, constituency, it's going to know very rapidly, and it's going to go down rapidly. Um, but there are examples of for-profits who are given a great deal of encouragement, and you think of film companies. Yep. I know there's a big development in Sydney called Carriage Works, which is on former big railway yards, huge place, and the film companies. Oh God, I've been there. It's amazing. A lot of incentives it's incredible. to set up there. Yeah. And the same in New Zealand. Um, man who made um, um, Lord of the Rings. Peter Jackson. Yeah. Peter Jackson. I think he comes from um, Wellington, and Wellington put a lot of money the city willing to put a lot of money into, a, which is ridiculous if you think how much money he makes, um, into a studio to keep him in Wellington because with him come all these other companies, um, post-production companies, that really mean that New Zealand now has an export market in film that it would never have had otherwise. Uh, okay, so Lincoln Centre, there was uh, an urban planner, head of planning in, uh, called Bob, Robert Moses who um, in the 50s and 60s had an enormous amount of power at a time when mega projects, i.e. very, very large scale urban regeneration projects, like building the West Side Highway or whatever else, 
um, uh, became, as it were, um, throughout, well, throughout the Western world, really, it was a period of sort of very assertive urban planning. And, um, uh, the, and he led the way in a number of those, and he and a number of others, uh, Rockefellers and others, determined that um, uh, an area known as, help me somebody, North of Hell's Kitchen, what was it called? San Juan Hill? No, yeah, what was Lincoln Center's area called before Lincoln Center? There's no New Yorkers here. San Juan Hill, I think, San Juan Hill. Um, uh, um, would be appropriate for a large scale, the world's largest at the time, uh, multi-venue multi performing arts space. And so they used what Brits call compulsory purchase, what Americans called eminent domain, to buy up and displace uh, as it were, the, the community in that area, which was a pretty, you know, run-down area. Um, uh, it was politically controversial, but it was highly sort of um, directive, uh, and um, uh, and uh, built um, uh, built it about 50% public funding, slightly over 50% public funding, and then a great deal of sort of high-level city philanthropy, um, uh, and. Um, it is, uh, it's a spectacular example of um, uh, very assertive urban planning. I find it, having worked, I, I mean, I didn't work on that, I'm not that old, but I worked on um, uh, a Ground Zero and um, uh, on, the, on the cultural strategy for Ground Zero, and I think it's inconceivable that anything as, as it were assertive as that could ever happen in the current environment. In other words, the planning environment, the, the deference of community to uh, political leadership then was so much greater. Um, uh, and the planning, you know, the, the politics of planning so much more centralized. Um, question is, you know, whether it is a success and an asset to the city. Well, you know, uh, the answer is probably yes. A lot of people hate the architecture. They've just spent $1.5 billion on, um, as it were, humanizing the scale of the space um, by, by um, uh, um, infill of various sorts. Um, but it's a very sort of, it is, it is of its age. It's of, a, of an age of supreme self-confidence, a bit like Sydney Opera House, of supreme self-confidence, of enormous assertiveness, and a total confidence in, as it were, the aspirational importance of the high arts. Um, um, uh, Barbican, similar. South Bank, similar uh, in London. Um, these mega complexes, now, interestingly, that degree of confidence, I don't believe, is found uh, so readily here. It is found in other parts of the world. Um, uh, the um, West Kowloon Cultural um, Development, which is an enormous plan for a mixed-use cultural development, which will include performing arts and visual arts, on the area um, where the old airport was on reclaimed land in, in West Kowloon uh, is of even larger scale. Sadiat Island in Abu Dhabi, um, which will include a Guggenheim and a Louvre and uh, a Zaha Hadid um, um, designed opera house is of similar scale. Um, uh, so, the, you know, it's about the assertiveness of nations, I think, at any one time, but most performing arts centers uh, we, now, people are looking for something of a more human scale, in, in certainly in, in the States, and they're trying to think about how they integrate into rather than stand out from their adjacent environments. And that's got a lot to do with values. Um, yeah. 
Central District can lead to the creation of thematic parks. Theme parks, yeah. Uh, and then means that uh, these communities, they, they lose their roots, the, the ordinary population, maybe they don't feel comfortable, they have to leave. And I think this, what is happening in some areas, for example, of Barcelona. Of course, it was very important. Gentrification. Do you know the expression yes. gentrification? Well, there was an area very nice called the Bodum, which is kind of Soho. Yeah. And before it was, of course, poor area, and it was very good for this work of revitalization. But now it became uh, very fashionable. There are design shops, and there are many foreigners who are going there to, to spend a, a, a time. Last month I met an American who went there for writing a novel, but the prices are very high in Europe. But is that? Right, and that's what happens in Soho in New York. So the, the transformation of Soho is absolutely total in New York. Now, is that a failure or is that a success in urban planning terms? In other words, Soho over a 20-year period has no slightly longer than that, 30-year period has has moved from being a uh, odd, uh, abandoned, slightly dangerous. Um, uh, industrial area with a few artists in it to very high real estate value, um, uh, high-end um, retail quarter, basically. Is that, is that a success or a failure? If they were looking for economic impact, they kind of got it, right? Yeah, it depends what your policy goals are, but I'm quite sure the city's policy goal was exactly that. It was to regenerate an area using artists as a strategy. What? The question is, is it active? Is it active? Didn't they act that it actually sat down and thought this is how we're going to do it? Um, yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, I think the, I think the idea of uh, um, uh, whether that, as it were, you know, how direct of a strategy was it right from the inception, I don't know in Soho. But I do know that it is now subsequently, you know, a pretty common strategy, witness Dumbo. That is the Dumbo strategy. There's no, ambigu there's no ambiguity about it. It's a stated strategy. Question? So, so, uh, no, um, <laughs> you ask if it's a question of, uh, if it's successful or not? Yeah. Or, um, my idea is, is it really a, a question of success? Or is it a question of, it's just the natural evolution of, of these kinds of creative districts? once it's developed, um, arts have to go somewhere else and then start a new thing. And then it, it's... Well, that's really what... No, I, I agree. If I were an artist now, I'd move to Detroit. I'd move to Detroit because there's fantastic real estate. You can live cheaply. You can get great spaces. I would move to Berlin. You know, there's fantastic real estate. There's, you know, it's cheap prices. And all my chums move there too. And it's pretty cool. So does that, you know... Um, does being an artist and, as it were, being instrumentalized in the fashion in that fashion somehow is is that a bad thing? Now, the uh, what's that? What's the what are the guys called in Minneapolis? Um, uh, workspace. Uh, uh, the Minneapolis guys who are now consulting to cities all around America, including uh, New York. Their basic philosophy is: Yeah, this is a bit of a scam. Uh, we want to build into this something which makes this district endure as a valuable place for artists. I think, uh, and um, cities are sort of buying that, but I don't know 
I don't know how long they'll buy that for. In other words, I think that, you know, they're not primarily interested in artists as innovators. They're art the most, most of the incentive here is about artists as agents of economic regeneration. Right. And another critic to using yeah. art for revitalization, you know, so is that what Now the Ford, Ford, Ford are being advised. You know, the, we were talking yesterday, day before. I was say that's, that's part of, I mean, they, these guys are Ford's advisors. God, I wish <coughs> I could remember the name. Yeah, uh, one of the projects the Times article referenced was a, an apartment building in, for artists in, in, Elmi, in the barrio. Space and where it was. In the barrio, I think. Yeah. It's the first mover's advantage, yeah. So I don't, I don't know, but maybe that is something to consider in terms of keeping, you know, uh, keeping things robust, keeping things fresh, that maybe, maybe there has to be some sort of give and take. I have a question. Uh, because is Detroit an important point for artists, or is it just because the, the rent is cheap? Because I think Berlin, they have a... Uh, the, the rent is cheap there, but there is also an important international art market there. So, because I was thinking about that, I mean, if, I'm if sure you move to New York or to Berlin, you have a, a market there, but if you move to Detroit... Yeah, you're right. It's got to be a context for, it's got to be a context not just for production, but for consumption too. Well, they did, but the, your, it's very difficult, as it were. It would be very, I mean, I think, I think Detroit right now is, an, a, is, is becoming an attractive place for various reasons. Yeah, um, uh, but you're right. It, you know, the idea that you're going to engineer a Detroit art market. I mean, you do engineer <coughs> markets. Look at, is it Documenta? In, uh, right, okay, what the hell is that? So go on, tell us about that. Go on. <laughs> just just describe where it is, what it is. Okay. Come on. Somebody. Kassel is a city in Germany, and I think after the Second World War, they established this big garden show, whatever, and it turned into the, one of the most important art shows, and it's called Documenta, and it's like every five years. But if you go like in between, I mean, it's like this shady. German city where <laughs> <laughs> but nothing is cute because it was like bombed and you have bombed, like all yeah, those 50s like Cassel is a dump, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but but, like the most but they developed an identity and a brand for the city around cutting edge contemporary art. 
by doing a biannual, is it? Fair. Uh, uh, it's every five years. Oh, it's every five years. Yeah. Um, uh, and, um, uh, of significant economic impact to the, to the city. And, and it, the whole art world, uh, the whole art world descends on this dump. It's like Venice Biennial. Yeah. Like um, uh, and uh, so you can do it. Okay, so there, say you can do it. If you're determined enough, you can do it. You've got to be desperate, I guess, but you can do it. <laughs> the Wagner Festival. Um, these, these were organic festivals that grew over a long time and have a a complicated and organic relationship to the communities in which they exist. They're also, um, uh, and they have very, very strong brands. And in a globalized world, good, we will get some of the globalization in today. In a globalized, highly mobile world, um, they can attract significant numbers of people to jump on planes and go there. As other cities have sought to brand themselves, they have, uh, as it were, um, either manufactured or packaged cultural events in a similar way. Um, uh, uh, what they have sought to do is to do that to their seasons in a way, to try and push their seasons together in a way that will create um, uh, you know, uh, something with a critical mass. Um, uh, and uh, some of them are successful, some of them are not successful. It was a highly competitive game, if you like, between cities. If you look at, for example, European jazz festivals, as a, a, only as an example I know, know a bit about, and you look at Perugia, you look at um, uh, Brecon, you look at where? Montreux. Montreux, you look at, um, um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Umbria, you look at um, Marciac, you look at, uh, um, and, you, uh, and you realize that these are uh, cities, these are, you know, uh, cities or communities that are competing very hard, highly subsidized by the city in order to attract. And the question is whether it's a zero-sum game or not. The question is whether, as it were, these cities are com competing with, with, with one another. Because when you look at the programming, the programming is indistinguishable. Because American jazz musicians get on the plane, and then they go boom, 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 and that's how you spend the summer, and then you go back again. Uh, uh, and, uh, um, and then, you know, not just American, but North Sea is the other one in, um, where's North Sea? In Holland, um, in The Hague. Is it in The Hague? North Sea Jazz Festival? Yeah. Um, uh, so, so, you know, uh, it, it helps create profile, but there are diminishing returns because of the level of competition between, between the cities. Um, but uh, it's a very important part of um, uh, cultural, cultural tourism is a very important part of the totality of a number of cities' strategies because cultural tourists are affluent and mobile. Um, but can I say one of the problems with festivalization yeah. is a city puts a lot of money into this one-off event. Meanwhile, cultural institution down the road completely has this program of events going on. Completely. It's completely and um, uh, so one of the dangers of festivalization is it leeches the vitality out of the cultural, um, uh, 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 of, the, of the more subtle elements of the ecology of the culture because the city is basically interested in um, high profile events. They're often not interested in um, the long term cultivation of, uh, of artists. They are more prone to buy in than they are to grow. Um, uh, the, um, uh, the artists that they're looking for 
um, they would rather, as it were, get uh, Algero or Winton or Marsalis or whoever in than they would uh, worry about, as it were, what's the infrastructure of jazz in our city. And um, it turns culture into marketing, basically, in the employment of culture. Now, I, you know, I don't want to, uh, I'm saying that's a danger. I'm not saying that always happens. If you take a city like Edinburgh, I think, and I've done a bit of work in Edinburgh, they think fairly long term about the festival. They realize that it's an asset that in some way needs to be nurtured. Uh, they realize that, you know, um, uh, that if they're going to have this, this uh, festival, or I should say these festivals, because there's a fringe festival, there's a literary festival, there's, a, there's, the, uh, there's the main festival, there's a jazz festival, and indeed they have festivals throughout the year. Um, there's a book festival which is in January, there's a Hogmanay festival which is in New Year. They have a strategy of different festivals, with the climax being the, Edinburgh, the main Edinburgh festival in the last two weeks of August, first week of September. That, um, uh, you know, there's no doubt that there are some cities who, as it were, are taking a long-term view. But I think that for every city that's taking a long-term view, there are 20 who are basically thinking, um, how, do we, uh, how do we, as it were, create something, um, how, 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 do we, how do we create something for this event every two years and not worry about what goes on in between? Right. So I'm just thinking, so in that way, the culture becomes like a vehicle for... Yeah, it becomes, it becomes a branding device, basically. It becomes, a it becomes a branding device. And eventually, if you use it as a branding device without any content, you will devalue it because people will see through, people will see through the brand. Um, if you take, I mean, it's worth just thinking uh, briefly. The, uh, I, mean, I think one, one issue is... Culture in isolation is unlikely to work as a regeneration strategy. Take the most obvious and spectacular example of culturally-led regeneration. I think it's, uh, in recent years, I think it's Bilbao. Um, uh, how many of you have been to Bilbao? Okay. Tell, tell, tell me something about Bilbao, anyone. Tell me something about Bilbao. I don't know the last, but I want to come from the report that you said that you put Bilbao under production and consumption. No, production and consumption? That's it. But I don't think it belongs there. I think Bilbao is an important example of economic modernization through cultural tourism. But I, I, okay. I don't know if there are so many artists there. And of course, it was um, after the What, in Bilbao? Really? Maybe on the waterfront, but generally not. I mean, I think that it works there because 
area was very depressed and now it's like a beautiful area with, you know, a lot of beautiful architecture and things. And I think that I'm, I mean, this of course is like the star project, but I think that they have also different things, different projects to, to integrate uh, artists in different industries in Bilbao. So I think that mm, okay. they are doing good things. So. What happened there besides the big building? Exactly. All right. Bilbao? So Bilbao. I think, all right. Oh, God, greening. But, so Bilbao um, uh, is a rundown industrial shipbuilding, I think, mostly. Shipbuilding, was it? Iron. Uh, iron. Uh, 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 in uh, the Basque area of Spain. Um, and uh, the arts community would say it's an example of the incredible magic powers of a high-profile cultural project to transform an area because the Guggenheim built a very large titanium building designed by Frank Gehry, an extraordinarily beautiful-looking building, actually, and, um, uh, and seen through the, you know, the eyes of the arts community, it was like sort of sprinkling dust on the city and everybody's lived happily ever after. <laughs> it is an incredible project, but it's only part of the story of the success of Bill Bow. And the fact that the Guggenheim has subsequently traipsed around the world trying to recreate other um, uh, similar um, uh, projects shows that even, in, in my view, um, uh, that they didn't really understand the nature of their own success. And that, uh, for me, you know, one is, um, it was part of a total renewal strategy. It included a new transport system. It included um, uh, hotels. It included, um, uh, you know, a new, a new airport. So the level of capital investment by the city, the city didn't just, you know, pay for a museum. It paid, basically, the city and the, um, what do you call, do you call them provinces? What's the, what's the larger regional entity? Yeah, the, it's, but what is the Basque country called administratively? It's not a state, it's a... Okay, an autonomous community. So they, so they uh, invested very, very heavily in a whole strategy of which the museum was a significant part, but not the only part. Secondly, they paid for not only the construction, they paid for the operating budget too. So the holy grail, the idea that somehow if you build it, it will then somehow magically you know, generate its own finances, they embraced from the inception that will be an ongoing financial commitment to the operating budget. So as it were, um, if you look at the premises on which lots of other similar scale things uh, uh, are built or almost similar scale, there's always this idea that somehow you know, through its sheer vitality, it will begin to generate enough funds for it to stand alone. There is an ongoing commitment in the Basque uh, public accounts to the funding of the museum. Third, if you look at the demographics, there are a lot of people around there. In other words, within one and a half hours flying time, which is not very far, you have millions and millions and millions of people. So there is a density um, uh, of potential population. Uh, and it's what, as it were, when you look at other me mega projects, when you look at what um, uh, um, 
uh, build what the Guggenheims tried to do at various times in Guadalajara, in, um, uh, in Korea, in where they have done extensive feasibility studies. They've never really sort of embraced the reality that there is a highly educated, um, uh, highly mobile um, uh, tourist industry within the larger area, which makes, I think, which makes a big difference. And so um, I, guess what, I guess what I'm saying is that the, um, uh, uh, and I, sorry, I think, uh, sorry, the last thing I would say is there's what I'd call a first mover advantage. In fact, it, by which I mean that the Guggenheim was the first of a whole series of spectacular architectural buildings that went up over the last, how long has Bilbao been open? It's been open 12 years, I think 10 years, 12 years. Um, but actually, you know, there are now Calatrava buildings of, uh, it was like Sydney Opera House. Sydney Opera House is undoubtedly the most famous post-war building because it's an extraordinary building. Um, uh, and, it, and it has a sort of a, a, an architectural uh, impact to which most people respond positively. I think um, Bilbao is very similar. Since Bilbao, we've seen a large number. So in effect, our sensibility for the, the sheer novelty of the architecture has been blunted. So it's a difficult, you know, there are specific, some of them are replicable, some of them aren't replicable, but there are specific reasons why Bilbao was very successful. But I think we tend to, we have tended, or cities, or, or consultants, I suppose, to cities have tended to say what you need is a big spectacular arts project and that will transform your life. And um, uh, it's a much more, I think Bilbao is genuinely successful, but I think it's much more, it, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a much larger strategy um, uh, of which it was a part. It's really worth going to see, though. Um, it's, a, it's an incredible um, experience. Can I ask a question? You know, as an American, I went there, my family went there just like for the day. Yeah. And then we moved on. And so we didn't really, in terms of these cultural districts and stuff, we didn't you didn't hang have around. much of an impact there. And you can buy but you spent some money. Yeah, it's common to buy these little packages where you can go from the areas where you're From there to back. San Sebastian. Yeah. San Sebastian, you and go and look at... Yeah, and I guess that's the, you know, that, that's the danger of a single um, spectacular, um, uh, uh, but, you know, yes, it's the same. Yes, and now you stop there, and before you leave, you Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Better, than, better than the alternative, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Should we take a break? Sorry, go, yeah, one question. It works even in major cities. It works, it works with the Disney Concert Hall in L.A. I think it's put L.A. on the high culture map. Yeah, and so was so was Al not Alice Tully. What's it called? The um, um, yeah, the old one, Dor Dorothy Chandler. Yeah. I don't know if it revitalized LA exactly. Though. The, the, the revitalization downtown has happened a lot more recently. But well, there's a long way to there go was too. Just, no? There was the business center. It was a spectacular building. It's probably more about the orchestra as well, and how it all First came the building, then came the conductor. Well, Eli Roth is not working. He's not working in the building. So, what about car culture? What about car? What? Car culture, like LA. Well, that, that, yeah, for fine grained um, development, I guess that, that's a challenge. Um, I, I don't know. LA is, it's, it's much more, uh, I think that there are different rules, in a sense, for what I would call global cities. By global city, I mean a city with so many millions of people in it that 
if you, you, you have the potential of doing something which if you get it right, you know you've got a built-in demographic for. New York, London, um, Tokyo. Uh, I think that they have completely different dynamics to them from, from, other, from other cities. Shanghai, probably. Beijing. These big global cities. Because you know that, you know, you have the opportunity. If you, no matter how obscure your niche, if you get it right, you can create, a, you can create a, an audience for that niche. Um, I once went to the Miller Theater. I was walking past the Miller Theater, and they had a Prokofiev marathon, which was all Prokofiev's piano sonatas back to back. It about, takes about eight hours. And I quite like Prokofiev, so I thought I would go. And I couldn't get in, okay? And I was thinking, how many cities are in the world that you put a back to back Prokofiev marathon, and you can't, you know, you can't get into it. Um, uh, and the point is, in a city with the, even, a, you know, eight and a half million people stacked on top of each other, even a niche as small as that, if you know how to market, you can get an audience for it. And I think that puts those, those sorts of cities in a very different, you know, in a different dynamic. I think St. Louis is, is deeply problematic. And I think the reasons, I mean, the reasons are it's physically too large. One of, one of the lessons of, of cultural districts is start with a concentration of energy, you know, some block, some street corner, something that is very vital, and then expand incrementally out. What they took was a very large area and then dotted things around it. It's got, the Pulit it's got uh, Emily Pulitzer's museum in one place. It's got the symphony hall in another place. It's got a jazz club in another place. But there's acres of derelict run-down buildings between them. Their, their idea was that if they put these magnets in, uh, they will get joined up. But, but actually, if the distance is too great, they don't get joined up. It's like Beacon High Street is too long. It, you know, the, the level of development required to get the whole thing going. I think that was one, one problem. The other problem was there was a lot of public sector in it, but no private sector. In other words, that um, uh, they, they put cultural institutions in, but they didn't think enough about what are the, the commercial cultural industries to go in with them. Uh, and it's stalled, in effect. Um, uh, I mean, it's not a complete tragedy, but it's, it's clearly, you know, under underperforming. Um, wow, where you been? Did you get stuff for all of us? <laughs> Tomorrow you should get stuff for all of us. Okay. Will they Do you want succeed? to? All right. Like, okay. I mean, is there a market there? That I mean, is a completely fascinating question, and it's one that I think about a lot. In a way, these are extraordinary. Um, they're extraordinarily ambitious projects. The scale is utterly intimidating, and. Um, First of all, there aren't that many of them. You're talking about Abu Dhabi. You're talking about um, uh, you're talking about West Kowloon. Those are the two big ones that are on the sort of world horizon at the moment. No, where, yeah, it's West Kowloon. Oh, uh, where else? I mean, those are the, those are the two that everybody's looking at, mesmerized by the scale of them, thinking, will you know, will they pull this off? They are clearly going ahead. That is to say, these projects are happening. Um, uh, uh, they are very different um, because West Kowloon is an area of enormous density, and to the north, in the in the in the uh, the, the territories just to the north of Hong Kong, 
you've got an enormous um, uh, population. So you have the, you've got the possibility of, if you get it right, of that absolutely humming. Um, uh, I think that if you get it right is the challenge. You know, what, if you look at the components, there's something like 17 theaters and there's 12 performing, a, uh, you know, there's, there's a very, there were going to be four museums. They've now combined those four museums into one mega museum. Um, uh, um, uh, my impression is that, that uh, I, even though Hong Kong is taking longer and the planning process has been very controversial, um, uh, that if it is built, it will probably, so long as the design is intelligent, it will probably fly simply because of the density. It's what I was talking about global cities, because of the density and mass. Abu Dhabi, God only knows, because it's a different proposition, because you don't have the same density of population. Um, uh, uh, and um, uh, I, I can't quite see who the audience are. Because the, the, the Dubai audience is basically, you know, uh, they don't go to Dubai, to be blunt, uh, to go and uh, visit the artifacts of the Louvre. They go to Dubai for, you know, sex tourism to some extent, um, you know, hanging out at the beach, um, partying. And it's a very, very, you know, it's absolutely the antithesis of the fastidious cultural tourist. So I just don't quite get now, clearly, Abu Dhabi's strategy is to say, okay, well, that may be the current demographic of tourism in Dubai, but over time, we are going to create a new demographic. But I believe genuinely that those buildings are overscaled. By that, I mean they are physically too big to be enjoyed. So I think that, you know, if you look at, for example, the plans for Zaha Hadid's Opera House, it's a 3,000-seater, I think, or four, even 4,000-seater. What the hell do you do in a 4,000-seater? Because everything needs to be amplified. Uh, so you're going to end up putting you know, big, schlocky musicals in there, basically. Um, uh, and so I, you know, it's going to be it's, it's a very, very odd proposition. Right. You can go to the Louvre, you can go to the Louvre Nine, you can, no, I just, I but feel it, like it's yeah, too transparent. It's a modern, yeah, but it's a sort of modern, first of all, there are three national museums in, uh, being built in, in, in Abu Dhabi as well. On Sadiat Island, it isn't simply the Guggenheim and the Louvre. There is a museum of pearl fishing. There's a museum of, um, uh, who is the, the national hero of the Emirates, who, the, the guy, the sheikh who pulled it all together, basically, and who died probably about 15 years ago. There's a museum dedicated to him. So there are three, and, the, and there's, a, there's a museum, there's a history museum as well. So, so um, it's, not just, it's not just the Louvre and the Guggenheim, but I, but I, and, and the other thing is, it seems to me there's nothing wrong a priori with the idea, if you're a, if you're a, if you're basically an oil-rich economy and you're trying to diversify and you're trying to um, uh, diversify your economy, it seems to me that a cultural strategy of some sort is a pretty smart thing to do. If you look at what's happening in uh, Oman, um, if you look at what's happening in uh, Doha, uh, then they are investing in cultural quarters, they're investing in cultural infrastructure, they're investing in arts education. They are, they, these are oil-rich countries who are systematically trying to diversify. The reason they're not hitting the headlines in the same way as Abu Dhabi is that they're not trying to build the biggest thing in the world. They seem to me, you know, that as, as it were, what they're trying to do is to take a, 
a more, probably ultimately more sophisticated uh, approach to diversifying their economic base and, di uh, and diversifying their tourism base. The problem with Abu Dhabi, for me anyway, is just physical scale. It's too much like trying to build, you know, the seven wonders of the world. Sorry. But I have a question. Don't you think that those things we're talking about, this is like more like urban planning that happens to be in culture and not so much like about cultural policy at all? Well, I don't know. What is cult? I, uh, I do know. No, I disagree. Really? Here's why I disagree. <laughs> um, um, most cultural expenditure is actually has, a, 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 sorry, a vast amount of cultural expenditure today has these sorts of considerations around it. That's why the money is there. If you took all of that out of the equation, you would be dealing with a tiny part of cultural life. That's the first thing. The second thing is, even if you are right about the motives, that in turn drives the shape of the larger cultural ecology of, of those cities. Um, uh, I'm doing some work in Philadelphia at the moment. So in Philadelphia, there has been a series of mega projects that have been uh, built for what you'd ra largely call civic rather than cultural motives. Kimmel Hall, great big concert hall. Um, uh, Museum uh, of Na uh, National Constitution Center. The moving of the barns downtown. All these projects. These projects aren't because, as it were, herbivorous arts managers are thinking what's best for culture in Philadelphia. It's because the princes of the city want to build these various icons um, uh, for all sorts of complicated urban regeneration motives and personal hubris and all the rest of it. But that, in turn, has a profound impact on the entire ecology of, uh, of culture in that city. It's sucking money out of the smaller organizations. The financial crisis of the larger organizations are completely filling the civic agenda. Um, uh, and uh, all sorts of um, basic, you know, uh, issues to do with the relationship of supply and demand are created as a result. And that trend is probably one of the most profound trends in the cultural sector. So the motives of, I think you're absolutely right about the motives of, as it were, uh, the, the, um, the motives of the, of the people involved. But unless any, you know, any consideration of cultural, the cultural agenda has to, A, take those into account, and B, try and understand what those motives are. And I think that at a global level, the same thing is going to happen. Think about it. Think how the world tipped, side, it tipped sideways at the end of the uh, late 18th and early 19th century, and all the goodies of Europe rattled across the ocean and fell into American museums, okay? Now, um, uh, and that's basically what happened. And if you read, you know, the biographies of the marauding Hearsts and so forth, as they charged around Europe saying, yeah, I have that, I have that, I have that. Or um, um, the best ones are, you know, um, Isabel Stewart Gardner in the Gardner Museum or with Berenson saying, yep, go and get me one of those, go and get me one of those, go and get me one of those. Um, something similar is going to happen and is happening now as the world tips another way. Um, it's, the dynamics are slightly different. The dynamics are because once an object goes into a museum, it stays within the museum system. But what is happening is that cash-poor, asset-rich cultural institutions are looking out across the world at cash-rich, asset-poor institutions, and a trade is taking place. And that trade is going to be, um, may we have your objects on some sort of basis, call it what you like, a long-term loan, a lease, whatever else. May we have some of your brand, 
because your brand gives us gravitas. And in the long term, most important, may we have some of your expertise too. We want your expertise, we want your brand, we want your collections. And what do you want, guys? You want money to keep your impoverished institutions uh, on the go. So what is beginning to happen is that strategic alliances, why is it suddenly that museums you know, um, are, are developing international strategies and cultural policy strategies, sorry, cultural, uh, sorry, uh, international strategic alliances? Why? Because they are seeing what way the world goes as affluence and disposable income tips back. And if you look at, um, uh, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, what, what, what is the Louvre doing in Abu Dhabi? Exactly that. What is the Guggenheim doing in Abu Dhabi? Now, those are relatively unsophisticated examples. If you look at the sorts of relationships that I believe will occur in West Kowloon, they will be a more sophisticated one because I think that the, um, the, the policy intelligence in Hong Kong is so much higher currently because it's just, a, you know, people have been, you know, thinking about this stuff longer. And they will say to a Lincoln Center, thanks, we don't want Lincoln Center West Kowloon. This is what we want. We, will, we, will, we want you to train our staff. Uh, we want you to um, service us with your product. And, you know, we'll work out the brand stuff so that we are building our own brand, so that we are not, as it were, eternally dependent upon you for your brand. We, will, we want a knowledge transfer. We want some sort of cultural transfer so that we end up in a strategically as strong a position as you, Metropolitan Museum, or you, Metropolitan Opera, ended up at the beginning of the 19th century, the 20th century. Yeah. Right. And if you look at actually the plans both for Abu Dhabi and for, um, for Sadiat Island and for West Kowloon, they are not simply about plonking down. I mean, don't believe that the planners are so naive. I think there's a naivety in uh, Sadiat Island about the demand side, but there isn't about, as it were, the urban planning side of it. In West Kowloon, the plan is to have certain anchor um, uh, um, large-scale cultural institutions, and then what's known in, in all the briefing materials, OACF, other arts and cultural facilities, art schools, um, uh, uh, you know, small design institutions, um, uh, production houses. Uh, in other words, it is to think through that, and then high-end residential, um, retail. Uh, in other words, it is a mixed-use development. Um, it's a culturally-led mixed-use development. It isn't just a museum island. Yeah, absolutely. And so that sounds like what happened Let, in the late 1800s. Absolutely. Like, yeah, absolutely. So I'll tell urban planning is just a tool. Urban planning is just a tool. <coughs> Let me give you the best example of that that I can think of. How many of you know the architect Zaha Hadid? Okay, you all know Zaha. So I worked with Zaha on a, uh, an opera house in Wales. It was never eventually built. 
Um, but I got to know Zaha very well, and over the years we worked on a number of projects. About four years ago, I got a summons from Zaha to go to her office in Bowling Green Lane in London. And when I, when I went to the meeting, she was there, and um, somebody from uh, the Azerbaijan Ministry of Culture in Baku was there. And in the table, on the table in the middle, was the most astonishingly gorgeous building you've ever seen. Now, I'm not always a fan of Zaha's architecture, but this was absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. Um, uh, and uh, it was there on a plinth. And this was, this was the question. The question was, we are going to build this. What do you think it should be? <laughs> OK, so why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? Because you think that's silly. What is the function of that building? The function of that building is a symbol of national self-confidence. The symbol, it is a, it's a symbol. They said there's only one thing. We want it to have a secular rather than religious use. Because this is, a, this is about nation building and it's also about the secularization of, of uh, Azerbaijan. And um, of course, you know, my reaction was exactly the same as yours, which was, oh my God, form follows function. Um, what planet are you on? Um, uh, you know, how, isn't this ridiculous? But of course, the more I thought about it, the less ridiculous it was, because this was about nation building. And uh, actually, the exercise was to some extent a rational one, not an irrational one. It was to say, okay, we're going to na nation build. We, are, we want this symbol. Um, how, how best, as it were, what is the most appropriate symbolic use of the symbol? And so the exercise that we did with them was to work through, to work out what that should be. Uh, uh, and of course, the great thing about Zaha's architecture is it's incredibly plastic. So the reality is, if you said it was going to be a theater, you'd do that to it. But if you said it was going to be a conference hall, you'd do that to it. And if you said it would be a library, you'd do that to it. You know, it's ultimately one of the interesting things. And, and, and Frank Geary's architecture is exactly the same. At some level, it's highly pragmatic architecture. It's highly pragmatic because it can accommodate the, the very techniques of computer modeling and the very um, um, design values are such that it is not actually built around a very tight program or brief. It's built around a symbolic gesture, which can then be tweaked in ways that can accommodate it. So, um, so I think you're absolutely right that a lot of this is about na nation building techniques. But then look at the shape of the British Library. Are you trying to tell me? Or look at the shape of the British Museum. Are you seriously looking at those and telling me form follows function? and that these are the most functional shapes for museums. But of course they're not. They're symbolic shapes expressing the values of the time, just like um, uh, Disney Hall is in its way, in it, with its porosity and its uh, democratic values, and just like um, uh, um, fascist architecture was in its way. You know, it's branding. Those examples are not unlike the uh, great ocean liners during the Golden Age, the France or the Normandy. Yeah. It's a really good point that they were, they, their, their very sort of scale and splendor were assertions of national self-confidence. So in a country like Azerbaijan, what did you decide to make that that would then um, everything else um, Well, the exercise was analytical. When we spent some time in Baku, we looked at the various, perp uh, we, we looked at a long list of candidates. We looked at what national institutions currently had failing infrastructure. 
And uh, the conclusion was that it should be a library and conference center, and the conference center should have a strong substantive agenda in convening, um, uh, in, in regional convenings of the, of the, larger, of the larger area. Um, and it's going ahead. Yeah. It's not a thing. Recall, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a therapist, but anyway. No, what I mean is, like, it didn't recall to me any prior architecture, but... Any of like, her architecture? No, no, any, like, other types of architecture. But if you, like, looking at things like the Metropolitan Museum or... Yeah, things like what? The Metropolitan Museum yep. here, other things. Like, they were done in this... Um, there was a classical... Style, yeah, classical style. So it's about... Neoclassical style, yeah. Right, but, but hang on, listen. Well, yeah, no. So, so, so the fashion of the time, because there were lots of Beaux-Arts architects coming out of uh, Paris in the 1870s, and the style then uh, was basically that neoclassical style. The style now of star architecture is to use the very limits of structural engineering and material science to build the most wacko shapes you can, okay? Uh, I think we are passing through that phase but to some extent, Zaha and Frank Gehry and um, Calatrava, in various ways, uh, symbolize that sort of um, uh, slightly, frivolous is the wrong word, but slightly um, uh, whimsical appetite for shape, okay? And that, that, you know, I think that that is the international style in architecture for civic buildings at the moment. Now, so all I'm saying is, I'm not, I'm not making a sort of aesthetic judgment. I actually quite like that building, um, more than most Zaha buildings, actually. But, uh, uh, but, uh, but what I'm saying is that it is no different from the neoclassical style being what, what around 1870 to 1880 to 1910 or so was popular here. It's, 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 it, there's a zeitgeist element to, to civic architecture. Yeah, you need content. That's, but it's not just needing content. I mean, in addition to needing content, is it also that just it legitimizes their institution to have something for an established legitimate institution? Meaning they're not just coming Yeah, they want a bit of brand. No, but we said that. We said that they wanted three things. Uh, but, they have a, but I think the more sophisticated partners have a very sophisticated view of brand. They want content, they want training, and they want brand. But I think the first generation just said, give me the Louvre, or give me a bit of the Guggenheim. But I think that now, uh, the plan is a slightly, uh, the general tenor is slightly different, which is we, over time, want to build the same provenance, the same provence, the same cachet um, uh, that your institutions have. So we don't just want to have you know, Guggenheim South plastered over us. What we want to do is to build some sort of partnership over time in which we can leverage the current brand whilst being able to escape it. It's a long-term strategy. And I think it's probably the right one. I mean, it's what, uh, you know, um, it's what a stronger partner can do. Um, yeah, but DC itself is an example of how the city has been 
wall architecture has an expressive as well as functional content. And New York. New York has a distinctive style, um, you know, uh, particularly uh, as uh, engineering. You know, there, there's expression form follows function, but there's another one, form follows finance. And I believe that form follows finance. Um, uh, and if you, uh, if you look at, you know, New York architecture, it's easy to see how, um, uh, which is, you know, um, uh, the, the economics of development are just as important as the, as the function of the building. Um, yeah, you were going to say something? No, it was sharp inhalation of breath. Um, okay, <laughs> enough on that. Should we should we go to New Orleans? So it is this, it's a city which has profound um, uh, influences from uh, Africa, from the West Indies, from France from Spain and from uh, northern European settlers. So it is an un unusually diverse um, uh, uh, community or communities right from its inception. It had uh, historically in the 19th century a more complex and integrated society than many uh, uh, in the United States, but it was also the center of the slave trade in Congo Square. Uh, uh, and, um, uh, and more important than any of these things, it was where jazz began. Sorry, I, that's for me anyway. Um, uh, it's a, uh, uh, a city of, uh, had a population of about 1.4 million before Katrina, um, and uh, always had a reputation as being culturally extremely vital and also a city of uh, relatively uh, uh, relaxed in its mores and social customs, but also very well articulated in, it, in its, uh, in its um, cultural customs. It used to be called the Big Easy. Um, uh, and um, it feels um, more foreign to most Americans, I think, than any other city, partly because uh, of um, Cajun, Creole, French influence, uh, and partly because of the architecture, uh, which is very distinctive. Um, uh, it has unbelievable cuisine, um, uh, uh, unbelievably rich cuisine, highly French-influenced cuisine. Um, and um, uh, in um, summer of 2005, it was hit by an enormous hurricane. Yeah. Yeah, it's a port by a big river. Oh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a river port. It's the mouth of the Mississippi. Um, and then in 2005, uh, it had it was devastated, as everybody knows, by an extraordinary hurricane, which in some ways was a natural disaster, but in some ways, at every level, was a man-made disaster, uh, because uh, the impact of the hurricane was. Um, uh, radically affected by what the, um, uh, the, the Army Corps of Engineers had done in dredging the, um, uh, the marshlands beyond the, um, uh, uh, beyond the um, levees. Uh, and so the impact of the hurricane, the city itself is an act of political will because it's built you know, in a 
very complicated system, a bit like uh, the Netherlands. It's built much of it below sea level. Uh, uh, so that's a sort of you know, man-made aspect. Um, possibly the storm itself is related to global warming. But above all, the, um, uh, the rescue operation or the um, ineffectual nature of the rescue operation was as a result of sort of lack of political leadership at every level at the time, at city level, at state level, and at federal level. Um, and so the result was a, you know, a massive catastrophe for this city. Um, as the city emerged from that catastrophe, there was uh, uh, one of many attempts was the, uh, to, as it were, strategize about what the future of the city should be was the one led by the mayor who, uh, of the time, Mayor Nagin. Mayor Nagin uh, put together a strategy group um, uh, about six months after the hurricane had hit, uh, not long after, to strategize about every aspect of the future of the city. And it was, uh, so there was one strategy group on transport, another on education, another on um, uh, the physical infrastructure, um, uh, and one on culture. And uh, the one on culture, uh, they looked for, as it were, relatively high-profile chairs. They, they often had them co-chaired these committees, one by somebody who was famous and one somebody who had local cred. Um, the culture one was co-chaired by, um, uh, by Wynton Marsalis, uh, and, uh, who, as you know, is a son of New Orleans, trumpet player, uh, and um, now my colleague at Jazz at Lincoln Center, my co-director. Um, uh, and, um, and Cesar Burgos, who was a local um, businessman. Uh, so their job was basically, they, in, a, in a fairly sort of chaotic post-hurricane uh, uh, situation, was to take responsibility for the development of cultural strategy as part of an overall integrated strategy of the future of New Orleans. So that's quite a gig. You know, that's quite a responsibility given the central nature of cultural life uh, to both its, its industry and to the fabric of life. In other words, that the complexity of cultural institutions, particularly because of strong traditions like Mardi Gras, which is uh, based on um, uh, uh, social aid and pleasure clubs, which are unincorporated organizations with long traditions that are you know, deeply built into the fabric of the society. It's fascinating and very, very foreign to most people, both in the United States and elsewhere, as they understand, as it were, the longevity of this culture and also the opaqueness of the culture. The reason I'm making a big deal of it is try doing a cultural strategy for this city. That's my point. <laughs> you are saying strategy is distinct from policy. No, I'm not. Uh, cultural, you know, uh, no, I'm not really. I'm not making that distinction. I mean, policy, you know, policy is the headline and strategy, what's underneath it. But, you know, a cultural policy for this city it, it, with, which is A, hit by a crisis of extraordinary proportions, and B, uh, is pretty economically um, on the skids anyway for various reasons, and then C, has this extraordinarily rich but complex and only partially articulated culture. Small c, capital C. The challenge, the gig that this little group had, the Bring New Orleans Back Cultural Committee had, is one in which it's trying to work through a, you know, uh, the, the remit was to say, here's this, this, this society which is A, very complicated, B, 
um, has just been you know, hit with a hammer. Uh, and C, its complexities are not easily articulated um, because they're not expressed through, and we'll come back to this when it comes to getting data, through incorporated organizations. It's through unincorporated organizations, i.e. informal societies that don't necessarily have legal standing. But, but one of the big issues uh, was and is, can you bring back the whole city or do you bring back a part of the city? That's an incredibly uh, divisive call to make. And when you have weak political leadership, too, which you have, uh, then uh, it's one that um, uh, absolutely goes to, you know, absolutely deeply controversial, which is how do you, you know, how do you go about, how do you go about a city which has shrunk in size, in fact, to run ahead? The city's population now, I think, is about 1.2 million as opposed to 1.4 originally. In other words, it's come back a lot further generally and faster than people had anticipated. But most demographers, after everybody had left the city and gone, uh, you know, uh, believed that a large number of people would not come back, and indeed many people have not come back, uh, uh, but that they thought that they would be planning for a city which was two-thirds or half the size of the, of the pre-Katrina city. And everybody believed that. In other words, uh, at the time, uh, everybody believed that they were planning for a city which was two-thirds or half the size. So how do you do that to a city was one of the questions. And of course, people in the Ninth Ward, which had been hardest hit, one of the ideas was simply, let's just abandon the Ninth Ward. Let's just say, this is a, this is a poor area that was devastated. Let's just, as it were, shut the door on it and not redevelop that area. And, and the reason we're talking about this is I think it's a fascinating you know, concrete example, uh, an extreme example, but uh, a concrete example of, you know, the challenges and, and possibilities of cultural planning. So, uh, so the next bit of the story is they put together a committee which had on it uh, a, an attempt to get representatives of most of the various communities. The committee is put together and its mandate is basically um, to try and uh, come up with a cultural strategy uh, of some sort that will provide some framework around which um, uh, re cultural regeneration should come. Um, I just the person I know a bit is that I got involved because I knew Winton a bit, and uh, he called me up and said, "Will you come to a meeting?" And uh, I went to this meeting, which I participated with him on the phone, him and I, and he was supposed to be chairing it on the phone. It was one of the early meetings of the BNOB Cultural Committee. And Winton is a very, very powerful personality um, and highly articulate. And, you know, he basically wrestled all these people into some sort of um, um, temporary silence. And then uh, I, my, my little gang became uh, the secretariat to that group. And uh, because of what Winton had told me about, um, as it were, the politics, of, uh, the politics of New Orleans, I went off to a foundation, the Louise Blauen Foundation, actually a British-based Canadian woman, and got the fee to do the work from her. I basically pitched her to get the fee to do the work because we didn't, didn't particularly want to be paid by the city. Because if we were paid by the city, we would basically A, be tainted from the outset, and B, um, we would have to follow the city's strictures and all the rest of it. But because we had got independent uh, funding, we had a degree of autonomy in the exercise that we wouldn't otherwise have had. And so, um, and so our job was basically to do the, the policy work underneath the, as, as the secretariat to the committee, which was one of the most interesting things I've ever done because it took us right into you know, all this very complicated picture. We just took it straight down the line. And what we, what we sort of said to ourselves 
was we will, we will be systematically politically naive. In other words, the only way to do this is to keep a bit of distance. The politics are so complicated that we will never get on top of them. We will just make mistakes if we try and play the politics. So why not just, as it were, go straight down the middle? Um, uh, and so we, uh, you know, we were sort of deliberately uh, naive. Um, we knew where we were being naive and where we weren't, but we still just kept naivety, if you like, as a sort of shield. Um, uh, and um, the first thing we did was uh, basically to try and do some sort of audit so we had some sort of data uh, to deal with in knowing the extent of damage, the size of the cultural sector, uh, the, size, uh, the number of people affected, and the ways in which we were affected. And as soon as we did that, and we invested fairly heavily in that, in other words, of that 100,000, we took thousands and thousands of dollars, and we gave it to individuals to go out and do polling, go street to street, just ask people, find out. And it was extremely valuable. It put us in a pole position vis-a-vis -vis all the work being done in the city, because we were the only guys who knew what was going on. In, in other words, that, um, that uh, the um, uh, just, just generating accurate data be made you become a sort of source point in the dialogue because, you know, uh, in the absence, and even if our data wasn't robust, and I think it was pretty robust, um, it was the best that was going on for a lot of time about, particularly about how the damage was done, uh, how the damage affected uh, smaller institutions and individuals. Because, of course, the larger institutions are hyper-articulate, you know, immediately. The, the, the Second World War Museum or um, NOLA or, or um, uh, the, um, NOMA, the, the uh, um, were very articulate about what their damage was, who'd left, who hadn't left, you know, et cetera. It's the smaller ones that were just sort of dazed and uh, uh, dazed and extremely sort of uh, uh, understandably cynical about the prospects of any sort of uh, context. Um, uh, we um, basically, if you look at page six, suggested that what was needed was some sort of framework, not just, not just or even particularly for public sector funding, but for all funding, philanthropic funding, individual funding, etc., going into the area. And so uh, uh, what we tried to do was to um, basically um, identify what we thought were the strategic priorities. And they were as follows, and it's worth just going through them. One, rebuild our talent pool <coughs> of artists, cultural groups, and cultural entrepreneurs. In other words, seek somehow to support individuals and cultural groups who had been damaged by the storm. Pretty obvious, but you know, important. Second, support community-based cultural traditions and repair and develop cultural facilities. Two parts. First, the big danger was the, the destruction, if you like, of the fabric and traditions, or is the destruction of the fabric and traditions. Now you may say, whoa, these are pretty weird traditions, but they are what the city is, uh, and the city's character is sort of um, uh, woven around them. So um, trying to work out how, um, uh, how to work at a fine level with individuals who, um, uh, who represent these and make sure that those individuals, you know, where they are, if they've been displaced to Houston, where in Houston, when they're coming back, where they're going to co come back, etc. Third, basically a branding exercise, which is to remind the world 
of the importance of New Orleans culturally as the home of all the great things that it's the home of. Fourth, make sure that in that dislocation um, caused by the hurricane, there wasn't uh, that, that there was some emphasis in the other strategies, particularly in education, in, in strengthening the explicit mechanisms by which uh, uh, traditions, culinary traditions and so forth are handed down from generation to generation. And then fifth, go out on a, you know, the biggest fundraising uh, wazoo you can in order to get um, uh, uh, funds into the city. Um, and basically, uh, what we spent a lot of time doing, I say we, the Committee of Rios was trying to get other parties aligned to or try to adjust this so it aligned with as much synergy as possible between this and the other strategies elsewhere. So the, um, what you're looking at is actually a presentation that we made, that the Cultural Committee made to a public meeting at the end of the exercise. Uh, I say the analytical exercise, we can, we can talk about what happened to it. Um, um, uh, and what, what what this does is basically unpack, I think fairly straightforwardly, we looked at other cities, we argued that other cities, well, I'm up to page 15 now, we, we argued that other cities invested heavily uh, in culture. I mean, these are the arguments which I described importantly as bullshit on the first day. In other words, these are economic impact arguments, but we made them for exactly the reasons that we talked about on, the, uh, you know, on Monday, which is arguments that are likely to engage politicians who are looking at job recreation politician's priority was job recreation um, and therefore um, uh, 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 <coughs> economic impact arguments were fairly important. And what the rest of this does, and it depends on your level of interest, we can go through it if you like, is basically break down those five goals and suggest sub-strategies for each of those goals or objectives as to how to reach them. Um, it's interesting. <coughs> there has been almost no effective public sector investment in the city. And people's expectations of political action were almost zero, I would say. Is that right? In other words, that there's a de degree of um, absolute um, skepticism about what, uh, what the city as an agency of reform. The city adopted this. It adopted it wholesale. Just went, yep, thank you. OK, that's our policy. Um, so you know, in terms of, OK, we can tick and move on. The city has adopted the policy. Implementation of the policy, absolutely negligible. However, because of the way we went about it, or we managed to consult heavily with the philanthropic sector, which means uh, Mellon, the big national like Mellon, Rockefeller, etc., international foundations, UNESCO, we dragged them all in. My take is that um, uh, there has been in quite a lot of intelligent philanthropy in the city, uh, or into the city, and a lot of that, certainly in the cultural sector, this got, this, this got picked up basically as one of the framework documents for investment of private philanthropy in the city. So the weird story is, the city has got, if you look through each of these recommendations, some seem to be happening, some don't seem to be happening. Um, but, it has, it, but the prioritization and the criteria, and then the idea, all the foundations were very nervous about uh, putting any money into, into uh, um, Louisiana, into, 
into New Orleans after Katrina, because they basically said, we don't know where the hell the money is going, and we don't know whether it will ever you know, get to where it's supposed to. And what this helped do was to give confidence that there was some strategic context for the investment of funds. Well, I initially to the council, they accepted it. And, uh, this report was, you know, it was well received because we had done quite a lot of work on making sure that there was a community grounding in it. It's politically a sort of damp squib because of the ineffectual, uh, we're talking about uh, uh, the political, um, uh, of the political players. But I, but I have absolutely no doubt, as Winton said to me when we started it, listen, you, there is no alternative but to do this work. And the reason there's no alternative to do this work is something is better than nothing. And this at least creates some sort of framework and context in which other, uh, you know, ex, uh, uh, philanthropists putting in money, anyone putting in money, has got some sort of starting point as to know how that money should go and some sort of rationale for doing it. So what I think the success of it was, I think that politically anything would have failed. I don't feel any disgrace in this being a political failure that you can't say, yeah, they did this, this, and this. Uh, but I think that it was a success in creating a conceptual framework that gave a private philanthropy, uh, the context in which to help uh, the city. Um, one more anecdote, and then I'll shut up. So that night, we were off in a, in a, uh, a private restaurant, a uh, private room in a restaurant. Um, Winton, the mayor, um, my crazy philanthropist, and, um, and her minder. And um, uh, I don't know whether you know, but uh, uh, Cooper, uh, Anderson Cooper did an amazing job on covering uh, and holding everybody's feet to the fire on New Orleans for, for long, long afterwards. Uh, uh, he managed, it's not, I don't think, the virtue of CNN, I think it's the virtue of, uh, of him as an individual, that he pushed so hard that uh, attention should be kept on the situation and the shortcomings of politicians. And Nagin had um, refused him a, an interview. Uh, and he was furious at this, and Nagin had said he was off, you know, troubleshooting something, and he had got wind of the fact that Nagin was in this restaurant. So Anderson Cooper was outside of the restaurant with his crew waiting to catch him. We didn't know anything about it, and I, as you know, I'm a, as you can see, I'm a sort of crackberry guy. Um, and um, I, got a, a, I got an email from my wife during the meal um, uh, saying, do you know that Anderson Cooper's outside your restaurant? Um, and I said, what do you mean? She said, it, because it was at all live on television. And, uh, and so I passed, I passed my, um, uh, I actually was taking this off now, wasn't I? Uh, so, I so, so I passed this to, um, I passed it to Winton, and um, he looked at it, uh, and he said, God, we've got to get out of here. The last thing I want to do is be photographed on national news with Mayor Nagin, because everybody felt the same way about Nagin. And, and so we said, oh, we've got to go now, you know, right, right in the middle. And he said, oh, no, stay. And so, so the philanthropist said, I've got to go because my private plane um, is going to get shut in, locked in at the airport. And, and he said, oh, it's all right, we own the airport. You know, so there was no, we, we, <laughs> there, was, there was no way we could get out of there. So, but we managed to push him ahead of us and then sort of walk around the side. But it was one of the more, more surreal experiences. When I went into arts consulting, I didn't think that's what it was about. You know, it was a completely surreal experience. Um, but as I say, I, th I think that as a, as a you know, um, it did what good it could. And as a piece of policy analysis, as, as nothing else, I think it's reasonably robust. So what are the policies that came out of it? Well, hang on. You're reading them. You got to, you're holding them in your hand. Think about it. Okay, Just go through each page. Reading the, you, you, you have objectives, but who's going to do for this is, By the way, if you go online, you'll find the big fat version with, you know, minute detail of every line. This was the pop version, so don't, you know.
but um, but what, I ha well, what do you mean? I'm Take something. I'm seeing objectives here, but I mean the actual. What, like construct affordable housing and workspaces for art artists and musicians? Bang. So take that. So that's that went to Habitat for Humanity. Uh, that's, that's a pause. I, I think, right. I don't know. I'm just trying to get you to articulate maybe to ask a few examples how you would like say it. Because I think we're a little bit confused. Like what parts are the ends and what's the, what are the actual policies and what are the tools to the policies? Okay. Well, I'm sorry. I'm a, I must have been gabbling. Um, uh, <laughs> We broke it down into what we saw as five strategic priority areas of concern, okay? Those are, what's on, those are what are on page six and that I ran through with you. Then, based on, as it were, our mapping of the city, what we did for each of those is to develop a series of sub-objectives. So if you take re rebuild our pool of talent, and you go to page 17, those 1, 2, 3, and 4 are each of the sub-goals for objective 1. And then if you go to the fact report, it <coughs> says which organization should get how much money, or uh, um, uh, with 1.2, assist artists regain their footing with cultural employment that serves the, serves the public. Uh, it suggests what agencies should be taking on staff uh, which not-for-profits have vacant positions, etc. Provide loans and grants to develop cultural... Uh, it suggests what agencies should di distribute what funds. And then at the end of it, it costs all those policies, and it suggests what the source of those policies should be in terms of how much federal funding, how much state, how much uh, philanthropy, etc. So how much more concrete can you get? Well, no, see, in, in my mind, though, the policy is when it goes to the, you know, the, the city government and we say, you know, resolution 4297B is going to be all artists get, you know. Right. That's not policy, though, right? That's legislation. That's one tool. Yeah, that's policy. Yeah. Yeah. And some of that happened, but you're right. Some of this is, some of this is aimed at the city. Some of this is aimed at the state. Some of this is aimed at federal government. In other words, um, uh, there are diff different different bits but, for, uh, but uh, and some of it's not about money some of it was about prioritizing areas of redevelopment like for example redeveloping um, uh, basically next to the French Quarter the um, uh, trying to articulate what the what the priorities should be in terms of investment in the creation of a, or the resurrection of the cultural quarter Is that? Yeah, see, I, this example is, is interesting because I, I have always thought or was thinking that policy would be kind of uh, more narrowly focused to who was going to be acting it out. So th this idea of a policy that the, the government can use, the funders can use, individuals, right. I mean, it's, it's well, a very high, high level. Yeah, but it drills down, I mean, uh, maybe I should... Maybe I should give you the reference for the, for the full document. But basically, I mean, what it does is it takes each of these and then takes them to a more and more sort of granular, granular level of execution. Um, uh, and what it ends up with is a great big action agenda with lots of different parties involved. And then those par each one of those parties can kind of understand their role. Um, the big dilemma of New Orleans, as we've just been talking about, is the absence of central 
uh, the absence of centrally coordinated, robust political execution. That's absolutely the heart of the problem in New Orleans. But the, for everybody who says that, there's another person who says, yeah, and that's the key to its success and vitality. In so other words, the big government pulling a big lever, you've got lots of little funds. Well, no, the, the, as it were, yeah, well, I suppose so. I suppose, you know, there are, there are people who would argue that they liked New Orleans the way it was uh, because the, the very sort of informality and uh, uh, um, laissez-faire um, uh, attitude of public authorities allowed this um, blossoming of informal culture. These are extreme examples. I mean, I, th I do think New, New Orleans is an extreme example. Um, uh, I mean, I think it's an interesting, I think it's a fascinating example because it's so culturally rich. But I think in terms of its, um, the weakness of its political institutions, it's, I mean, it's, it's not off the charts compared with some other cities, but it's, it's not at all like working in London or in New York or in a, in a, in a city. I, Maybe because the stakes are so low in the arts, I very rarely, I mean, I've worked with public sector authorities for 20 years. I very rarely come across corruption in our sector. I'm sure there's cor corruption in the construction sector and so forth, but in the arts, there's just not a lot. I mean, I just wonder if, if you gave a report that was this thorough or as thorough as the, the entire document to another city. Um, again, it just it doesn't seem like even if the city wasn't corrupt that it would be easy to implement because as we've pointed out, there's just so many different actors and we don't have any sort of central place that regulates and yeah. controls that you, you have to basically count on people actually, <coughs> all these separate actors actually following through on this and you can't. I, th I think that's true and whoever was talking about indicative planning, who was talking the other day uh, about, yeah, okay. So I think the answer is the value of this probably was as a framework for indicative planning. In other words, it allowed other parties to see what their piece of the totality was and make a decision as to, you know, uh, uh, what, it what it helped is in a, in a relatively chaotic uh, situation, sort of sort the world out into boxes that people could understand and therefore give them a framework, if you like, through which to see where their bit fitted together. Um, uh, and to that extent, um, I think you're right. Um, uh, clearly, uh, you know, it's a matter of degree uh, but um, it takes a lot of consensus to push forward a, a strategy in any, you know, in any environment. Writing the thing down is, is helps to create that consensus. The other thing is, and this is the same in, you know, uh, uh, you know same in, within organizations, it is difficult to get a substantive consensus unless you have a procedural consensus. Here's what I mean. If you and I are in some uh, uh, negative or zero-sum game, in other words, if I win, you lose, and vice versa, then how am I going to tie you to the outcome of whatever the right thing is for, for all of us? My best chance of doing that is to get you to agree in advance to some sort of process that you will feel committed to the outcome of the process. So part of the value of these sorts of exercises is to take disparate groups, get them to buy into a process that will help commit them, only help, not necessarily, but help commit them to the outcome of the process. 
One of the advantages of this bit, I think, of the BNOB thing, which I felt relatively pleased about, is that we went to great lengths to create a consensus around process. What I think was the tragedy of other bits of the BNOB exercise, particularly the one around the Ninth Ward, uh, uh, was that there was no attempt to create a procedural consensus. And so there was no appetite to address zero or negative sum games like, basically, we don't have the money or the case for re the, the redevelopment of the entire city. So, um, uh, and maybe you just can't create a consensus around that because it's too sort of uh, any, no process is robust enough to create a consensus. But um, you stand a much better chance, and that's, I think, the value of consultative processes, clearly, in getting buy-in if there is a, if people are bought into the process before they buy into the result. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, uh, the committee was responsible for that. Um, in other words, after it had been adopted and after it had been, as it were, uh, then uh, there was then a sort of reverse rollout process of going around those organisations. And um, the, you know, the great thing about it, it's not that big a city, so you know, all those organisations you, you can get in a room, they all know each other. Um, uh, the big challenge, as I said before, it was really. A lot of the vitality of the New Orleans is not in the larger organizations. It's very, uh, you know, if you look at if you look at America, if you got to look at New York and you think about the institutions that are defining, they tend many of them, not all of them, to be the larger ones: BAM, Metropolitan Opera, Metropolitan. That is not the case in New Orleans. In New Orleans, its cultural identity is defined to a large extent by the smaller organizations uh, uh, and by uh, by cultural traditions, if you like. <laughs> around jazz, around Mardi Gras, et cetera. So, uh, so you know, uh, the challenge was always thinking, my God, you know, we've got, the big, we've got the big honchos in the room, but do we really have the people who represent what it is about New Orleans that people want to try and, you know, uh, ensure survives? And that's, you know, that's a, that's a big, that was a big challenge. The preceding program was brought to you by Teachers College, Columbia University. Please visit us online at itunes.tc.columbia.edu.